Hello, traders, analysts, and other followers of the energy industry. My name is Corey Stewart, and I'm a senior analyst with Refinitiv, your go-to partner for energy analysis and data. As always, I'm here with Jim Mitchell, Refinitiv's head of America's oil analyst, and we're going to take you through what's happening in energy in the Western Hemisphere. We're talking ESG today, and we'll be using it a bit of a different format. So, Jim, let's get this party started. ESG is environmental, social, and governance. This framework has been around for a decade or so, but has really gained popularity in the last four or five years. The Equator Principles is a risk management framework adopted by financial institutions for determining, assessing, and managing environmental and social risks in projects. It is primarily intended to provide a minimum standard for due diligence and monitoring to support responsible risk decision-making. This is directly from their website, equator-principles.com. 37 pages and 10 principles that leave a lot of wiggle room for what is the worst of their projects in their category A. The defining terms being, and I quote, projects with potential significant adverse environmental or social risks and or impacts that are diverse, irreversible, or unprecedented, unquote. This is what is driving the international finance community's financing goals. They updated the last version in July of 2020. 111 financial institutions in 37 countries. There are a number of U.S. banks and two in China with no ties to the oil and gas business. Representing the Middle East is a retail bank in Bahrain and First Abu Dhabi Bank. That's it. It's curious to me that these principles only address the E and S part of ESG. I realize the governance part for international banks is complicated, but considering the $2 trillion of money laundering that was exposed in the September leak of suspicious activity reports, I'd think for credibility's sake, they would want to address that. Some of the institutions named in these SARs are also equator principle signees. We'll leave that piece of hypocrisy for another day. One last piece of hypocrisy before I let this go is the green bond market. Germany is the third AAA rated sovereign to issue a green bond. On September 2nd, the Germans issued what they call the green bond. Their intent is to build out the green yield curve. Here's the hypocrisy. The 6.5 billion euro 10-year bond is a convertible, in their term, twin. So if the revenues from the five areas, they will distribute the proceeds, transportation, international cooperation, research, innovation, and awareness raising, energy, and agriculture. So if these five can't make the coupon payment or redemption, the German government will cover it. That doesn't sound like a green yield curve. It sounds like your parents co-signing for a car loan. The real green yield curve would be to rate these bonds based on the revenues from activities like international cooperation and awareness raising. Don't think that will make a AAA rating. The North American Industrial Classification System, NAICS, identifies 2,196 industries, all of which are touched by oil and gas in some way, shape, or form. About 90% are touched by electricity, regardless of how it's generated. All 2,196 industries are subject to this framework, 
but it's 19 that get the most attention as it relates to their category A projects. 11 of these industries are around power generation and distribution, and eight are around the automotive industry. So that's what we'll talk about today. Okay, so I see where this is going. Let's start with the E in ESG. The environmental issues and successes from oil companies have been laid bare in recent years. We all know the goods and bads. What has not been widely written about is the environmental issues of green and renewable energy. So let's stay within our 19 sectors and around the industry. Electric vehicles come to the showroom with a carbon footprint of 30,000 pounds of carbon dioxide emissions. A conventional car is 14,000 pounds of carbon dioxide emissions, as stated by Dr. Troy Hawkins, a postdoctoral researcher for the Argonne Lab managed by the University of Chicago for the U.S. Department of Energy. This guy is the world expert on environmental life cycle for hybrid and electric vehicles. He goes on to say, once on the road, if the electric vehicle is charged by a coal-fired generation plant, it will lead to 15 ounces of CO2 pumped into the air per mile. That's three ounces more than a gasoline-powered engine. Power generation aside, even at 50,000 miles, EVs, electric vehicles, have a bigger footprint, bigger carbon footprint than conventional cars. At 90,000 miles driven, the EV, was, if it was charged by a natural gas power plant, it has finally overcome its carbon footprint hole by only a disappointing 24%. So what is causing this big carbon footprint in electric vehicles? the mining of cobalt, lithium, and manganese. A United Nations report this year talks about the metals for electric vehicle batteries and where they're produced. These countries have, and I quote, weak or non-existent environmental or label labor regulations, end quote. I wonder if that makes the equator principles. Well, it might. Companies that are well known for sourcing their own raw materials for battery production are gladly paying a middleman, red big metal trading companies, to source cobalt. Michael Kelly, Emeritus Professor of Technology at the University of Cambridge, said it this way, quote, To get an idea of the scale of mining of raw materials involved in replacing the world's gasoline and diesel-fueled cars with EVs, we take the example of the UK. If we replace all of the UK vehicle fleet with EVs, Assuming that they use the most resource frugal next generation batteries, we would need the following materials. About twice the annual global production of cobalt, three quarters of the world's production of lithium, lithium carbonate, nearly the entire world production of neodymium, and more than half of the world's production of copper. End quote. Man, that sounds like a lot. The UK fleet of registered cars is 38.5 million cars, or just 13% of the U.S. fleet. Multiply all those numbers above by eight to get to the U.S. values. Wow. All right, moving on to power generation. Bill Winters is the CEO of Standard Chartered Bank. They are a signee of the Equator Principles. Bill also sits on the board of Voluntary Carbon Task Force for the IIF, Institute of International Finance. His research 
suggests that to meet the Paris Climate Agreement guidelines, the world will need to invest $125 trillion. So let me give you some perspective. The 2019 world GDP was estimated to be $121 trillion. That's the value of everybody doing everything, not just energy. The world has invested $3.66 trillion in the last 15 to 20 years to get to the point we are now, as stated by the Energies Journal. The Energies Journal is an open access scientific journal. So to get to carbon neutral by 2050, 29 years, the world will need to invest a bit over $4.31 trillion every year for the next 29 years. That's 116% of what we've done in total to this point. And we need to invest that amount every year for the next 29 years. Going to go out on a limb and say, we ain't going to make it. So what do we need to fix environmentally on the wind and solar front? Let's start with wind. A few studies have been done that show the ground temperature underneath wind farms is warmer. Not warm enough to change the vegetation that grows under them, but does change the soil carbon interaction. Essentially, warming the microbes in the soil forces them to release more CO2. There are certainly questions about wind farms offshore, but I'll leave that one for another time. There are more, but I reference three separate and independent studies. Number one is two Harvard professors, Harvard physics professors, Lee Miller and David Keith. Number two, Lee Ming Sho, a professor at University of Albany in New York. And number three is Drs. Armstrong and Walden from Glasgow University in the UK. What all three studies found is that during the night when the turbine is spinning, air currents below the turbine warm the ground by one degree Fahrenheit. There's also some small damage to the greenery of the plants. The other point that I want to make about wind turbines is the recyclability of the blades. These things are huge and made out of fiberglass and balsa wood. The U.S. changes out about 8,000 blades a year. Since it is not economical to recycle, they just get buried as landfill. Wind turbines are certainly less CO2 than a coal plant, but nowhere near free of environmental impact. Photovoltaic cells, also known as PV cells, obviously produce no marginal CO2, but do have a couple of issues to consider. The seemingly easiest to fix is also the most prompt danger. Even though the panel is expected to function for 30 years, if one actually makes it that long, it'll be a miracle. Everyone who lives in Texas or Arizona or anywhere where solar really pays off knows the sun destroys everything. In Texas, the pounding rain and occasional hail don't help either. The issue comes when rainwater gets into the PV cell and they leach selenium, strontium, lithium, and nickel. The biggest concern comes in the manufacture of PV cells. 60% or so of all of PV cells produced worldwide are produced in China. This is a very energy intensive process. And that energy in China comes from coal generation plants, which ironically translates into PV cells produced and used in China actually increase the CO2 levels. But for argument's sake, let's say that PV cells are produced somewhere else. Here are the numbers. 
For one gigawatt per hour, solar panels are responsible for about 85 metric tons of CO2, with net gas generation being around 438 metric tons, as stated by the EIA. Obviously, this is apples to oranges a bit, as solar panels don't emit CO2 in the production of power. Their carbon footprint comes from the manufacture process. So solar cells are a touch over a quarter of the CO2 emitted as compared to a nat gas generation plant. Here's the part that nobody's talking about. In the real world, PV cells don't last 30 years. My personal experience with PV cells over the last 20 years is more like eight years of life before nature destroys it. Maybe my case is unique, but if it's not, the cycle for CO2 emissions for eight years of life of a PV cell is indistinguishable from the power generated from a nat gas power plant. Finally, Corey didn't let me go full science geek in the last episode, so here it comes. You can't stop it. You can only hope to contain it. The bluish material on a PV cell is called polycrystalline silicon. If you have a black PV cell, that is monocrystalline silicon. To get polycrystalline silicon, one uses a Siemens reactor. The big drawback of this process is that for every ounce of polycrystalline silicon, you get three to four ounces of silicon tetrachloride. This stuff is so deadly, the MSDS, Material Safety Data Sheet, says the exhaled air of the dead victim can kill you. <laughs> I thought secondhand smoke was bad. So speaking of being socially aware, let's move to the S in ESG. Certainly each of these individual letters in ESG can be its own three-day seminar with the obligatory chicken cordon blue lunch. I can talk for days about all the examples of how energy companies improve the communities they are in. We heard a few from Gregory John in episode 21. The one Canadian example I want to reiterate, I actually talked about it in episode 19, is what Imperial does in the area of mining reclamation. I am stunned that they have a team, not an individual, a team of people that study how animals can be attracted and encouraged to remain on reclaimed land in the boreal forest. Chevron articulates their vision as clear as anyone. They have nine pillars, and I've worked with them on some of these. Their nine pillars of social sustainability are, number one, building local capacity, number two, creating prosperity, number three, economic development, number four, education, number five, health, number six, human rights, number seven, partner program, and number eight, supply chain management, and number nine, university partnership. All of the energy companies have programs like this. Too many examples for the time that we have, but I'd like to mention two. The company that I work for now, Refinitiv, gave me time off a few years ago to replant native grasses in Houston after a recent flood. They didn't have to do that. Another example from my days at Shell, we went into an old part of Houston to do yard maintenance, yard maintenance and paint the house of a senior citizen. So I got up on the ladder to paint the soffit of this house. A soffit is the under portion of the roof that overhangs the outside wall. Anyway, as soon as I touched brushed the house, the rotted wood gave way to a three or four second deluge of termites. After I shook off the insects from the termite shower and the creepiness of that experience, 
We called an exterminator and a carpenter to fix her house. I went back the next day to finish painting the soffit. Shell didn't have to do that. It didn't even make the news. This lady didn't even own a car. They do it because that is the culture of the energy companies, all of them in their own way. And that is different from what gets painted by the media. One last point. Launching your convertible into space is a pretty cool thing to do. But is it as cool as giving future generations an opportunity at prosperity like TC Energy did a couple of weeks ago? The Paiute Shoshone tribe is right there in Story County, Nevada, right next to the Gigafactory. So, Corey, what do you have for us on this topic today? Well, I'm still going to stick with Latin America. And let me start off with a sort of blanket ESG evaluation of the region. You're just not going to see the type of ESG commitments in the region than you get from, say, Canadian or U.S. energy or even the, the super majors. Now, I won't go so far as to say that every major energy company in Latin America has thumbed its nose at ESG to the extent that, well, Pemex has. But considering that even when there's been some reformation of energy industries in South American locales and opening up of areas for outside competition, many of the largest energy companies in the continent remain largely under state control and significant sources of income for the sovereigns where they are headquartered. And sure, where large, formerly state-owned companies now have some measure of accountability because of outside shareholders, saying that those outside interests have a lot of sway is like pretending that being a shareholder in, say, Aramco gives you much of a pool when the other 98.5% is controlled by the Saudi government. It's just pure fiction. But enough of the conjecture. How about some real data? We know what the acronym ESG stands for, and Jim took us through what each of those letters means. But borrowing from MSCI's definition, it's, quote, consideration of environmental, social, and governance factors alongside financial factors in the investment decision-making process, end quote. It just so happens that MSCI has an emerging market Latin America ESG leaders index, which includes 48 constituents spread across Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Mexico, and Peru. If I look at the top 10 constituents of this index, which consequently make up nearly 54% of the index, how many of those do you think are energy companies? Did you say zero? Yes, that's right. Okay, how about another? Well, check out the Index America's Corporate Sustainability Index for Latin America and the Caribbean that was created by the Inter-American Development Bank. There's 100 constituents in this index. So let's count the energy companies that show up on the list. One two, three. Oh, wait, no, it's zero. Uh, to be fair, there are several utility companies in this index, but this index also includes a large number of foreign companies that just so happen to have a considerable presence in the region. Think AstraZeneca, Accenture, Hewlett-Packard, MasterCard. Point is, if I'm a South American energy not for ESG. So is there any South American energy? Ah, Yes. So let's, let's dig a bit deeper here. First, a couple of things. One, what I cite here only scratches the surface of what Refinitiv has to offer in regards to ESG and investing in general. If you're not a client, you're really missing out. And two, let's just agree that Venezuela and PDVSA are off the table when it comes to ESG. You couldn't invest, invest here if you wanted to, but it's hard enough to meet the environmental side of the equation when you produce heavy crude. And for that and the other factors, well, we've covered corruption and influence in our last installment. 
But suffice it to say that when your company is government controlled and the people under the government are starving, it doesn't bode well for your social score. And when your business is sanctioned by several world powers and your leaders are largely considered illegitimate, well, your total ESG score isn't looking so hot. Methinks you drank your roommate's moonshine, couldn't go to the bed to make it to your ESG 101 final. But I digress. And, um, you know, on the advice of counsel, I invoke my fifth amendment privilege against self-incrimination. So anyway, moving on. YPF produces about half of the crude produced in the country, with the rest produced by other players, most notably Shell, that continues investing in Vaca Morta. I've talked about before, what is produced in the country largely stays there to meet refining demand. There are efforts to increase production, in the case of YPF, but 500,000 barrels per day more into the world market. YPF is also 51% owned by the Argentine government. So how does YPF fare in the world of ESG? Well, Actually, pretty well. For Argentina headquartered companies, 56 are ranked. 56 are ranked, and YPF comes in at number seven with an ESG score of 60.22. The median score for the companies in the list is 33. So YPF score and ranking is substantial, especially if one considers that companies in the banking and media industries rank lower. And why such a positive ranking? Well, a number of reasons. Over 20% of YPS workforce is women. By 2023, the company expects to reduce its CO2 emissions by 10%. It's Argentina's number one renewable energy company with 20% of its own generation from renewables, produces mostly low sulfur fuels, and has projects in the mix that will improve the company's energy efficiency 10% by 2023. The company, though largely focused on crude production, continues to invest considerable sums into renewables and other ESG-advantaged projects and initiatives. YPF is actually the chair of the Argentine network of the UN Global Compact. All great things. And I'm not saying that they wouldn't otherwise have these goals, but again, 51% government-owned. And Argentina was a beneficiary a couple years ago, the IMF's largest ever bailout, $57 billion loan. What's happened in the Argentine economy since then is outside the scope of this podcast. But if you've been listening to me ramble on these podcasts and webinars we've done the last few months, you'll know that I'm still a bit in shock with the state of the world economy and potential structural economic changes. But the continued strong focus on the, quote, energy transition from governments and influential stakeholders. If you've not read the October release of the IMF's World Economic Outlook, there are only three chapters. And chapter three is devoted to climate change. When we talked about innovation and technology, recall that I mentioned Columbus Echo Patrol. Not only is the company using blockchain and nanotechnology in its operations, it gets a solid B for an ESG ranking. Here, every weighted category gets an A or A-, but for controversies. And for me, it's difficult to penalize the company there. As the category was dragged down for oil spills in relation to having its pipelines bombed. Other South American companies uh, that come to mind, uh, Petro Ecuador, Petro Peru, and ENOP, are all completely state-owned, so I don't have any pure ESG information. But what about the big dog in the block, Petrobras? Solid C. When we talk technology, Petrobras also made an appearance and understand that the middling scores for 2019, not 2020, and they hear the main reason was affluent discharge into Rio de Janeiro's bay from the Reduc refinery, which is effectively Petrobras's lubes refinery, producing 80% of Brazil's lubricants. Other hits have to do with, well, as Jim would say it, the ghost of corruption's past. 
We all, we all get that Petrobras is at the center of Operation Car Wash. And as this investigation continues, business ethics controversies will continue to hang as a cloud over the company. However, as Petrobras shores up these issues, modernizes its drilling fleet with new and efficient FPSOs, and sells off refineries, from the perspective of an oil company, Petrobras will improve its ESG rankings. Okay, that's all for me today. So, Jim, please close us out. Regular listeners have heard me say we need all the above forms of energy. In fact, in my free time, I even play around with the alternative forms of power generation of piezo and tribal electricity generation. Piezo is pressure, tribal is friction. However, the hype for carbon neutrality is way ahead of the science and profitable business model. Once we lose this juvenile yours versus mine mentality, between renewable forms of energy and the old reliable hydrocarbon forms, only then can we start to make significant progress. Next week, Corey and I will look at some potential changes to the oil and products markets in the year ahead, irrespective of who is in the White House. Can't wait. Also, make sure you check out Jim and my social media pages. We have some webinars and things like that coming that you'll not want to miss. Aside from that, have a great week.